Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by Nini's Treats, N-E-N-E-S Treats, ninistreats.com, an amazing family-owned and operated crumb cake business based in Charleston, South Carolina. You can buy their delicious crumb cakes at ninistreats.com or on goldbelly.com. Nini's Treats, you won't leave a crumb. I'm thrilled to be here today with Beth Ricanati, MD, who is a physician who built her medical practice around bringing wellness into everyday life, especially for busy women juggling work, children, and their relationships. I don't know anyone like that. <laughs> Beth is the author of Braided, A Journey of a Thousand Hollis, which is a memoir slash cookbook about her own quest for wellness. A graduate of the University of Pennsylvania with a degree in art history, Beth earned her medical degree from Case Western Reserve University of Medicine. She trained in New York City at Columbia Presbyterian, Columbia Center for Women's Health, and the Women's Health Center at the Cleveland Clinic. She currently lives in Santa Monica, right back here, uh, with her husband and children, where she brings wellness to women wherever she goes. Her website is housecallsforwellness.com. Her book is available for purchase on Amazon and wherever you find books. So welcome back. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here this morning. Thanks for doing the double podcast and filming. This is a new little hybrid experiment, so thank you. Absolutely. Taking part while our while our Hala is uh, raising in the backyard, which is so fun to have made it with you this morning. Um, so in the introduction of Braided, you tell readers that you've been baking Hala almost every Friday for 10 years. And in the book, you answer the question, why, right away. And you say, because countless demands on my time and energy overwhelmed me. Because as a physician, I know all too well that stress like this makes us sick. Not just theoretically sick, but actually sick. Because I learned I could change this pattern. And then you say this book is a recipe on how to make the bread and take the time you need to be truly well. So... Can you explain, it was a long way of asking, can you explain how baking hala can actually make people feel well, both emotionally and physically? Yes. What I learned when I was making hala, and it's not the reason I started to make it necessarily, but what I learned, having now done this for 10 years, is that it's a, it's a moment in time every Friday that I can take to just stop. To just stop and be present with all the ingredients as we did this morning. When your hands are in a bowl of flour, you can't be emailing. You can't be running the list of things to do. You're here. You're present. And for me, I have found that is the best antidote for stress. And stress, of course, causes medical issues such as heart disease, diabetes, cancer, you name it. Almost every illness I can think of is exacerbated by stress. So I guess it's kind of important to get it under control. It's a big, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. With 75% of all chronic disease lifestyle-driven you know, food, exercise, stress, etc., it, it matters. Early on, you cite the loss of your high school friend Meredith as a shaping event in your life, naturally. Um, I was wondering how that and other losses, including the losses of many of your patients and your fellow mom friend, Sherry, have made you want to live your life more to the fullest now. You actually said about Sherry, my kids, your kids' ages, that this piece was just so, just hit home so much for me, especially at this age of having young kids. She died much too young. She is no longer able to get up in the middle of the night if one of her children awakes. To this day, every single time a child wakes me up in the middle of the night, when I know that I'll be ruined with fatigue the next day, I think of Sherry, who doesn't have this opportunity anymore, and it touches me every single time. So beautiful. So tell me how these losses of yours have shaped your life and your pursuit of sort of wellness and happiness. I realized ultimately that, that we have a choice, and we can 
go through our daily activity mindlessly, or we can actually live with more intention. And I have had loss in my life. And, and when that happens, it's a really poignant reminder that I have this choice and I, I can make a different choice and I, I can be more mindful. And I do think of my mom friend when, when the kids, thankfully now they're older and they're not getting up quite as much. But it really is incredible. I think about her when I'm up in the middle of the night and I, I, I think about her as a mom and I think about her kids who can't go to her during the night. So I really am much more, I'm choosing to be more intentional because they're not here. And it's almost like it's a way to honor them and honor their life and their memory. And I like how you say in the book, as you did this morning, that each time you make hala, you say it in merit of someone or in honor of someone. I feel like these people in your life, and I have lost people as well, it's nice to have a, 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 a way to remember them on a weekly right. basis in, in a formalized way like that. I think it's so important to do that. And when you just put it out there in the universe, it just brings it home in a way that, that might, it may not otherwise. So you wrote your first cookbook for the blind when you were 15 years old. That's a crazy story. Let me hear it. What happened? How did that So I was out? in high school. And the backstory to that is that when I was in elementary school, we read the story of Helen Keller. And I was blown away by that. And I, I wanted to learn Braille, which I did and at that time. And then flash forward, now I'm in high school. And uh, I had been doing some volunteer work. Um, we lived in Cleveland and at the Cleveland Society for the Blind. And they had a mock kitchen. And so I was with some of the clients and watching and learning how they were learning how to navigate in the kitchen and talking with them about the foods that they, they eat. And most of them were, because they couldn't see and because it was hard to navigate in the kitchen, foods like bologna and white wonder white bread and all these things that... I really didn't think we're so healthy and good for them, but they're easy. And so we were really fortunate that Stoker's is headquartered, or was at that time headquartered uh, nearby in Solon, Ohio. And I was at a school that was also close by. And so I went to both the site center, the Cleveland Society for the Blind, and to Solon, uh, to Stoker's, and wanted to modify all of their recipes into a new uh, cookbook that would be in large print and braille so that hopefully they could at least if they were going to be using quick, easy, convenient food, at least they could have the vegetable lasagna, for example, as opposed to a bologna sandwich. So it was a fun project. I, did, I worked on it during high school. Wow, that's amazing. And a great sort of segue into your, your new cookbook slash memoir, which is amazing. You talk about eating disorders a little bit in the book. And now you kind of flirted with one for a little bit, but avoided it. You also say you were very focused on your weight for years and that you could tell anyone what you weighed on various key days in your life, from starting ninth grade to studying for college finals to falling in love for the first time, which when I read, I was like, I totally know what I weighed at the beginning of high school. I totally know what I weighed when I fell I could, I have those numbers in my head. Um, also, I relate when you said, but fortunately, I can no longer tell you what I weigh now. Having children changed that for me. Overnight, I gained a new perspective. I am also like not getting on the scale anymore, which is probably not good, but how has having children changed the way you feel about your body? It's an incredible experience to first be pregnant, and, and I was fortunate to, to have uh, three children, and then I nursed them their first year and, and now take care of them. And to when I was pregnant and then when I was nursing, to have to be really mindful of, of what I was eating for their health. And so it didn't matter anymore about me. And, and on a dime, it just didn't matter, which was great. And then after I had them, it was this incredible realization of 
what we can do, what our bodies can do as, as women. And, and we can bring these, these children into the world and nurture them and nourish them. Fortunately, it's just not an issue for me anymore as a result of that. So back to the book. So you explain in detail how to actually make the challah, which is really helpful for anyone who wants to start out. You, each chapter mm-hmm. is very clear from what you do, like just great detailed directions. And then you actually poke fun at yourself at one point about your reluctance to experiment with the recipe. Even though you say it's forgiving, you say it's not like I'm solving the Arab-Israeli conflict. It's just bread. So how come you're afraid to experiment? Is this recipe just the best? Or, I mean, I know at times you have, but what would make you more willing to do so? I was never a baker, and I was really nervous to mess with success, if you will. Mm -hmm. It worked. The first time it worked. It is a really forgiving recipe that that I talk about in the book. And it worked, and it was so great that I was afraid. I thought, well, what if I don't want to ruin it? Right. So for a long time, I didn't touch it at all. I have recently started to try and, and manipulate it a little bit. Sometimes I, I actually recently tried and made the dough the day before and put it in the refrigerator, which I had actually never done. I have friends who do that and had told me about it for years. And I'll throw in ingredients maybe now that are, at the new year we had apples and honey. And I didn't do that for a long time. Again, I didn't want to ruin it. But now, now it's okay. I find that extends to other things in life too, where I may be really hesitant to try and, and do something different. Because if it works, I'm afraid to rock the boat. But it's okay. <laughs> Trying things is a good thing. I know how you feel. I'm like, something's finally set. I don't know. I, I'm afraid. But Okay, so many times in the book, you talk about how food is medicine. And obviously, we've heard this theory. Tell me your interpretation of that. How is food medicine? Oh, I'm obsessed. I do think food is medicine. I think that what we eat can really affect our health, and it can affect our health in so many ways. So I think, for example, there's been a lot of research around cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, sauerkraut, Brussels sprouts, kale, all of that. They can turn on and off genes in your body that can literally promote disease or treat disease. So cancer comes to mind. And if you have breast cancer or colon cancer and any of that type of cancer and you eat more cruciferous vegetables, they have found it to help. Or spices. I now cook a lot with turmeric, for example, because the research, I like it. And the research shows that it's such a powerful anti-inflammatory. I think that's so cool that what we eat today can help with our disease. And back to a comment I said earlier where Chronic disease is 75% lifestyle driven, and that's food, exercise, and stress management. I now add in things like tobacco and sleep, but focusing on on the first three, if what I eat can help protect or prevent or treat a disease, why wouldn't I try to do that? So I I talk about that with my patients, I talk about that with my kids, I'll basically talk about that with anybody, because I think think it's a really powerful concept. I feel like food also can make you so sick, not just the preventative, but some of the you know, the corn syrup and some of these, like, like the canned frosting that I yeah. occasionally think about putting on my kid's cake, and I'm like, oh, gosh, how can I do this? This is not going to be good. So I'm, like, spooning it up, but anyway. So when you're talking about how long to need the challah for, which we did earlier today, which was so fun, and you're asking people like me, I think, who are saying, exactly how long do I need to do this for? You say, well, how do you know? How do you know anything? You just know. You just know when it's ready. Which I really liked. It's sort of this, like, you have to trust yourself. And I feel like you put that a lot in this recipe. But how do you really know when it's done? Like, give me the, we, I saw when we made it a little bit, but for so people they, at home. Right. The original recipe said to knead for 10 minutes. And I didn't know, I having never kneaded anything. A, I didn't know how to knead. 
And B, I didn't know what I was looking for. And, and, and do I just stop at 10 minutes? I mean, is that magical? Is it done at 10 minutes? And what I have found is that you really do just know. And it's the how the dough feels. You don't want it to be too sticky. You don't want it to be rock hard. Mm-hmm. So you're looking for a consistency that where it forms a nice ball and has a little give. So I, I poke it and it has a little give. And some weeks I had more flour and some weeks... I don't. And that's where, when I'm talking about how you just kind of know, yep. you have to go with the flow a little bit. And, and how much you know, effort are you putting into it? Maybe, maybe one week you're pummeling it. Right. And one week you're being really gentle with it. But it works. It, it just it works. And with kneading, we talked about this earlier, also with Aiden Hollow, but you say, I need for my needs, which is one of the best lines in your book. Need, K-N-E-A-D, for your needs. Um, tell me more about that and how it meets your needs. I realized that for me, spending the time making the dough is a, a way to be mindful. And it's, it's, my, it's my meditation. I don't do a lot of other meditation, I'm trying. But it's really my time to just work out whatever I need. And some weeks I spend maybe five minutes needing, and some weeks I spend more because things are different each week. And I need something more. And how much do you think the community aspect of making challah helps? I know you said in your book about how you like to bake with other women, and that's in part what inspired me to want to bake challah with you this morning. I'm like, well, why not me? Yeah. Here I am. And Friday morning, you know, like, let's do it. <laughs> I think the community aspect is probably one of the biggest lessons I've taken away from this whole experience. Because making challah, it builds community, it sustains community. I think it's tremendous. So I do try and make challah now with women. Some women are my dearest friends, and we just, they know I'm making challah, they come over, it's a thing. Other times, you know, I've never met the person, witness us this morning, or I'll go make challah with a group of women. But I think it's tremendous to gather around a table and to get messy in a bowl full of dough. It's just an incredible thing. So that is the aspect of building community. And then when I think about sustaining community, what gets me about this bread is the history. And it has been made for thousands of years, which A, is super cool, and B, it's been made all over the world. So we're making bread here today in LA, and there are people making bread in New York and in Washington and Chicago and and in Europe and in Israel. And Oh, I think that's so great. And it just brings us all together a little bit more, which I love. I agree. So nice. Tell me a little more about the process of your writing this book. So you're a doctor, you've got three kids, you're busy, you're all over the place, and now suddenly you're writing a book. How did this come about? And take me through what happened. About five years ago, I actually was working on another book. Oh. It didn't work. It didn't happen. I had spoken with a bunch of people about this, and I had this story brewing in me, the the hollow story. And so we just shifted gears completely. I put that book aside and started this book because I I really wanted to share the story of not only my journey, but some of the lessons that we've learned, that I've learned, and the history that I hadn't appreciated at all about hollow. And I didn't know that growing up, and I wanted to talk about that. And some of the health and wellness pieces. So it all really came together around this book that has some history and it has some food and it has some mom and medical around it. Having never written a book and not knowing anything about that, I thought, okay, we're going to do this during the calendar year. Kids went back to school in August and I want to have a manuscript in June. The good news is that happened. The longer, more difficult stories, it was a painful year because first I thought, okay, I'll just write a memoir. So I did and it wasn't complete. It didn't really work. So then I thought, okay, this is, it's a, it's a cookbook. It's about Allah. I'll write it as a cookbook. Well, there's one recipe. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't make for a good cookbook. So then I thought, okay, 
I'm a doctor. I'll write a self-help book. Isn't that what doctors do? So I restructured the whole thing, and it was really boring to write, and it was really boring to read, and so that didn't work. And what I finally realized was it's, every, it's all of that. Right? Yeah. And it was really fun to, to sort of take some of the, the memoir and take some of the cookbook and take some of the self-help and sort of pull it all together in the manuscript. I think that's what makes it so great to read is because as a reader, I'm getting so much out of your book. Not to say it's not just fun to read books, but I actually can take away all these tangible, great pieces of advice, both for my own, like how to take care of myself and, you know, my whole wellness, the food aspect, the medical aspect. I can learn a recipe. It's like you, you like, it's great. There's like a lot of takeaways and it's not too long. It's perfect. It's like a great book for moms and uh, other busy people. And I think it's really great. You are a busy juggling mom Still, what are your tips, aside from making challah and reading this book, of course, for moms to make room for wellness in their lives, even if they can't bake each week or they're not into challah? No, absolutely. I, I think that it is absolutely essential to have a meaningful ritual in your life. And it does not have to be baking at all. It can be gardening. It can be knitting. It can be salsa dancing, as someone just told me recently. It can be anything. It doesn't matter. And I also think that looking for the perfect thing is not probably the best way to go about it because you'll spend all your time looking for it. But just as you're doing what you enjoy doing and realizing that we need to wrap self-care into our behavior. It's like when you get on an airplane, right? And the stewardess or the steward says to you, well, when they're standing at the front of the plane before we take off, in case of an emergency and the oxygen mask falls, be sure to put it on yourself first. And then if you're traveling with small children or people that need help, then put it on them. I think so often as busy, particularly moms, but really all of us, we tend to take care of everybody else first. And we forget. I forgot for a while till I was not in a great place that we have to take care of ourselves. And then we can take care of everybody else. So I don't really care what you choose. I just want you to make sure you have some form of self-care in your practice. Okay, I'll try. Uh, one other question about the book writing process. So you spent the, you know, you spent the kids' school year writing your book and making it all, all work. You ended up deciding to self-publish. It's actually hybrid publishing. Right. Okay. okay. Let me explain something yeah. different. So I did want to do traditional publishing first, and I thought that would be fantastic. And I and we went down that path, and it didn't work out. And it was really such an interesting life lesson. I got the agent in New York. We pitched it in New York, and it didn't happen. And I thought, oh. How did that happen? But it didn't happen. And I put it away for a little while because it just, it was really painful. And I, did, I loved the book and I didn't want to alter the book, mm -hmm. but I was going to have to alter the book if I was going to go that route. So fortunately, in the intervening time, the publishing world has really changed. And you can self-publish literally today if you want to put a book up on it, you know, Amazon creates space, you can do that all the way through to traditional publishing. And so I did a lot of research and I was really fortunate to find a publisher that was sort of in the middle because what I wanted was traditional distribution. I want the book out in the world. I want you know, people like you to find it, which you did, which is so exciting. And what I liked about this process was I could have a lot of control and a lot of say. We wound up changing the title and I probably, that wouldn't have happened had I been in a traditional Path. What was it? Like, bake a challah and call me in the morning? Make challah and call me in the morning. A physician's simple recipe for healthy living. And I was so set on that. And everyone around me was, no, you have to change this. And I wouldn't for years. I mean, I think I hung on to that for multiple years. I just thought that was the best thing. And it's not. 
It's not a great title, and it took me a long time. But I was able to, in this process, I was able to change it, which was fantastic. But it was late, late, late in the game. So we actually had to redo the cover. It was a late change, and so I'm really grateful to have been on a publishing path that enabled, allowed me to have that flexibility. And do you have any advice? Let's say there's somebody else out there hoping to write some sort of a book that maybe doesn't fall in such a specific category. What advice would you give them? Start writing. Start writing. I think we, we all wait for the perfect time. There isn't a perfect time. I had to just make time. But I think that in terms of the writing process, just get down and do it. Even if you write for five minutes a day, just get a practice going. And then in terms of the overall sort of mindfulness piece of it, the having a meaningful ritual, again, don't worry about what the perfect thing is. Just make sure you start something. It'll probably come to you later as it did. I realized multiple years into this that, oh, <laughs> making bread every Friday, it's become a thing. I rearranged my whole life for this. And that's when I realized actually the power of, of what I was doing. Well, thank you, Beth, for sharing all your stories in this book, for sharing your time with me, and for listeners of Mom's Done Time to Read Books, and uh, can't wait to taste our hell of it. I know, me too. I'm excited. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been brought to you by Nini's Treats. Nini'sTreats.com, available also on goldbelly.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.